Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Paul Josephson about his new book, Fish Sticks, Sports Bras, and Aluminum Cans, The Politics of Everyday Technologies. This came out in 2015 with the Johns Hopkins University Press, and it's a really fascinating study that is doing multiple kinds of work at multiple levels. So on one level, the book is full of really, really interesting stories. These are narratives that are... Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Paul Josephson about his new book, Fish Sticks, Sports Bras, and Aluminum Cans, The Politics of Everyday Technologies. This came out in 2015 with the Johns Hopkins University Press, and it's a really fascinating study that is doing multiple kinds of work at multiple levels. So on one level, the book is full of really, really interesting stories. These are narratives that are really vibrant. They come off the page, they're informative, and they are available and I think really pleasurable to read, whether you're coming to the book um, from the perspective of academia, whether you're um, a historian or an STS scholar, or whether you just really like a really good, a really important important and a really impassioned story about the world around you. So it's, it's written for a range of different kinds of audiences, and I think it succeeds on all of those levels. At the same time, the book in each of its chapters offers us a touchstone or sometimes more than one touchstone that opens up into larger ways of thinking about the historical, social, political, cultural networks and systems that are bound up in, that inform, that produce, and that explode out of some of the everyday objects that we otherwise might take for granted. A banana, an aluminum can, a sports bra, a fish stick. And in each one of these chapters, what Paul's doing is opening up larger themes germane to how we understand technological systems that are um, involved with and that help us think about the importance and the formative um, and shaping forces of gender, class, race, um, agro-business, and other sort of major um, forces that shape the everyday world around us in profound and sometimes very subtle um, ways that aren't immediately available to the naked eye. What the last part of the book does, in addition to all of this, is it takes on the larger issue of state power and large technological systems and brings us specifically into a case study of Russia, um, and looks at some of the ways that modern Russia is, um, and, and the modern Russian state specifically, um, how these are bound up in these large projects about techno futures that have to do with um, exploiting the Arctic, that have to do with space programs, oil exploitation. And so there are really, really interesting things happening in the end of the book, in the last chapters of the book, for people who are particularly interested in those kinds of phenomena, um, and in Russia, specifically as a case study. So it was really a pleasure to talk with Paul about this, um, and I'm very grateful to him for navigating the France to Vancouver time difference as well. And I'm also grateful to you listeners for your time and for supporting the channel. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks very much for listening, um, and have a good interview. I'm here today to talk with Paul Josephson about his new book, Fish Sticks, Sports Bras, and Aluminum Cans. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Paul. And thanks very much for spending time talking with me today about a really interesting new book. Thank you, Carla. I'm happy to talk with you. So, Paul, let's start as is kind of traditional for the channel um, at the beginning. What brought you to the field? How did you come to work on the history of technology as an academic subject? 
I'm a lapsed historian of physics. And uh, after I finished my first book, I was looking for a second project, which brought me to nuclear power stations, which are big technologies. Uh, and from my further study of big technologies like reactors, hydroelectric power stations, highways, especially in unforgiving places like the Amazon or the Alaska Highway, I began to think that not only are big technologies very important in our daily life, but everyday technologies are as well. And just kept my eyes and ears and mind and tongue open to them over the next few years until this book materialized. So the book that we're talking about today looks um, in many ways at the politics of everyday technologies, plus some not so everyday technologies. And we'll talk about the details in the conversation to come. How did you come to focus on this particular topic and what led you to decide to create a book length object about this particular topic? Uh, on the one hand, it's a kind of a, a marketing issue. I had four or five essays that I had written that I hadn't published yet. And as with everything that happens to us writers, as I was working on another chapter or article or beginning of a book, who knows what it was because I was just writing and writing and writing, which is what I love to do. I saw how several of the things I'd already completed or come close to completing in my travels and in my writing actually shared a common theme, a common exploratory point that went beyond what interests and excites me and what I hoped would be things that would be interesting to explore with other people, with friends, uh, with people who don't know me, with uh, historians of technology, with journalists, uh, with political figures, with people abroad, with people at home. Great. So the technologies that the book explores, and these include fish sticks, sports bras, as the title indicates, sugar, bananas, aluminum cans, potatoes, high fructose corn syrup, and more, are described in the book as technological systems. And the analyses of them that we find in the book cluster around some major themes. And we'll talk about these in the course of the conversation. Um, those themes include environmental concerns, concerns with food and eating and food technologies and the consequences um, for our bodies and our lives of these technologies. And they include consumer demand, technology, and desire. And there's also um, some really interesting material coming out of this on labor, um, on large-scale technological systems. And as we get toward the end of the book, um, there's an increasing attention towards state power and issues of technological systems and state power. So we will cover um, at least most of those in the course of the next hour or so. So let's dive right in. Chapter one talks about fish sticks as the ocean's hot dog, as the title of the chapter indicates. Now, fish sticks were created, as you show us here in the chapter, less as a result of consumer demand and more as a result of overproduction thanks to a series of new technologies. And those technologies range from um, fishing-related technologies, refrigeration, um, material science technologies, um, the post-war kitchen, the technologies of everyday labor, um, and much, much more. So let's dive in here. Why, for you, is it important to uh, kind of push back against the idea that fish sticks were created as a result of consumer demand and for you, what are some of the most imp immediately important ways that these new technologies shifted the landscape of um, fish stick production? Yeah, regarding the fish sticks, I just happened to be walking through Gloucester, Massachusetts one day and stumbled upon the statue of the fishermen outside of the Gortons of Gloucester uh, factory and corporate headquarters. I had just completed a book about uh, large-scale technological systems and their impact on the environment, and it became clear to me that much of the overfishing, especially of North Atlantic stocks, was connected to these large-scale technological systems you've mentioned of refrigeration, of catch, new plastics, sonar, World War II surplus boats, and so on and so forth. And so it seemed to me that it was 
necessary for us to consider the way in which this overfishing should have led to cutbacks in fishing, but continued to grow and grow and grow. And that's where the manufacturers came in with their business acumen and their ability to advertise, to create demand for the product that they catched and increasingly processed at sea. They ended up with fish blocks. They developed ways to you. They built new band saws that could cut the fish with very little loss of fish meal. They could bread them quickly. They could uh, somehow create for the uh, American, especially the stereotypical American housewife in the new, modern, efficient space age kitchen of the 1950s. They could, they could get people to buy these things and deal with the overproduction in that way. So they answered their demand problem. Uh, they, they created consumer demand, but they continued to overfish and uh, contributed to uh, in environmental uh, problems, And it was also fascinating to discover how the federal government became involved and supported the fish stick, not only by regulating to ensure quality. Uh, it's really shocking if you ask me that only 60% of a fish stick needs to be fish for it to be considered a fish stick. Uh, I would think 95 is more reasonable plus the breading. Um, but also through school lunches and so on, there were supports for the fish stick. And as I ask rhetorically at the beginning of the, the chapter, which elementary school or junior high school kid has ever asked for a dry gack in the mouth, trap in the throat, uh, fish stick for lunch as opposed to something else? Although I guess they're better than burgers mm-hmm. or French fries or hamburgers. And one of the really um, notable things about the book that uh, I'll just mention here for listeners so that they know is that it's written in a very approachable style. This is written in a style that can be picked up and enjoyed and read through um, either from front to back or by dipping into the chapters by a range of different kinds of audiences, including people who you know, are not academics, may not have any kind of background in or um, interest in reading academic works of the history of technology, but really just want to read a set of really fascinating and important stories. It also, though, can be read productively, um, and I speak as one of these uh, audience members, perhaps, by people who are working professionally in STS and the history of science and technology. And one of the really interesting um, kind of themes that you're pulling out here implicitly that is, I think, going to be of interest to a wide range of historians um, along those lines is the ways that the um, kind of uh, spaces of the laboratory, right, the spaces of research and the spaces of technological production that we may not otherwise um, associate with uh, laboratory science or think of as laboratories um, in a sense like fishing vessels, like supermarkets, um, like household kitchens, both serve as really important motivators for this technological story. Um, so I really appreciated that about what was going on in this chapter. And I think it, um, it really helps us understand, again, something like the supermarket as a kind of laboratory for advertisers um, and for researchers along those lines, um, among other things. Yeah, I think that um, you're absolutely right that one of the things that uh, STS people, historians of technology, historians of science should enjoy in the book, I hope they do, is the way in which I look at these objects, yes, as things in themselves, but they're obviously part of larger technological systems from research uh, to innovation Uh, to the consumer, to ways of selling, to ways of packaging. Uh, But every chapter indeed does involve some uh, science and technology in the laboratory and and the creation using modern science, uh, biochemistry, uh, physics. I mean, the fish sticks, for example, uh, uh, fish stick producers had contracts with MIT's food science department to help them produce a better product. And it was also one of those things that scientists worked on to irradiate in the 1960s as they attempted to uh, prolong the se- shelf life 
of uh, fish sticks without uh, uh, having to worry so much about preservation. Uh, I'm against food irradiation because I think uh, clean and fresh is the way to go. And smell is the best way to tell whether a product is not good any longer for us or not. Great. So these really interesting interplays between the laboratory and research and the everyday also come up in the next chapter. This is a chapter called The Sports Bra, Gender and Technology. Now, you call the story of the sports bra early in the chapter a story of reverse gender engineering. Uh, The inventors of the first sports bra were actually two grad students who engineered it from two jock straps. So can you maybe open up this part of the book in this chapter by talking about this? For you, what is reverse gender engineering and how does this speak to what you um, think are some of the most important things that are happening in this story of engineering the sports bra? Yes, uh, many people much better and in greater depth than I have talked about and written about investigated the way in which uh, technology can be uh, gender specific or reflects the broader uh, values of of life in which our gender roles, uh, unfortunately, often uh, play a uh, uh, a major uh, function so that uh, many technologies appear to be male and many uh, fewer technologies uh, in some cases uh, tend to be female, uh, especially when coming to sports. So here was a, 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 an area of, of need in, for female athletes for comfortable, safer uh, better clothing so that they could participate as athletes as much as males did. There was no place in the store for them to buy a sports bra. There was no sports bra. And in fact, uh, because of Title uh, Title IX had only come into existence, uh, many uh, women and especially high school girls and little girls really didn't even have access to sports. So the fact that the two creators of the sports bra took a male technology, the jock strap, and turned it into a technology that enabled uh, females more, much more comfortably and uh, with greater efficiency and with greater joy to participate in sports activity, whatever they thought sports activity was, is um, just a marvelous a phenomenon of reverse gender uh, engineering. And I would add, by the way, that in fact, each uh, of the chapters for students or uh, advanced students does have uh, a special theme so that gender and technology is the obvious one for this one on uh, the sports bra. Right. Now, this chapter draws, as you describe um, early on, on interviews with pioneers of sports bra technology. So for you, in the course of the interviews that you did to inform the work that you did in this chapter, were there any particular moments that stand out as especially um, surprising, especially moving, um, just especially noteworthy in the course of these oral histories that you were doing as as a historian? One thing that I've always found doing oral histories is how uh, all respondents, whatever the field I've been involved in, the the study I've engaged, have been so forthcoming and uh, warm and uh, friendly. Uh, I think that innovators and physicists and engineers and technologists and others uh, are in a way historians. Uh, They want to write their own history. So if you can engage them about what they have done and show the same kind of appreciation and enthusiasm that uh, they have obviously had when innovating, uh, they are uh, delighted to uh, speak with you. What was more surprising or perhaps at least more difficult at first was finding some of these people. But the Internet is really in that regard a marvelous thing. And I was able to track down Uh, one or two people, and then from uh, that, uh, identify other individuals. And uh, as I noted in the chapter, there are now, I believe, something like 40 different kinesiological journals being published, mostly in uh, Anglo-American countries. Uh, 
uh, which seem to be the center of uh, sports physiology and kinesiology research that uh, concerns women athletes. And by looking at those journals, I was also able to identify a large number of pioneers of the sports bra and be in touch uh, with them. They were always willing not only to share their histories with me, but when I sent them draft chapters to provide uh, critical comments, which is uh, a marvelous thing for an uh, innovator, engineer, and scientist to do for a colleague from history. So you explicitly mentioned in this chapter that you have experience as a marathon runner and you invoke your experience as a marathon runner in the course of the analysis of and the storytelling of um, this story of the sports bra. Can you tell us a little bit about that intersection for you? Are there ways in which you are um, you feel self-reflexive about how your experience as a marathon runner has shaped your approach to the analysis of this story? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I'm now working on my uh, 110th marathon in just a couple of weeks, wow. and I've, I've signed up for another five or six this spring. And in, in the course of running, uh, you make new friends. When you run with someone at their pace, and you'll always find someone at your pace in a marathon, you start talking. It's a natural thing. They can be male. They can be female. They can be wheelchair runners. They can be others, uh, other runners who are special in their uh, own way. And having suffered maladies of runners or muscles, blisters, and so on, bleeding nipples, it's really delightful. I remember once I, I <laughs> I bought a um, – at the end of uh, races, uh, most marathons will send you a link to buy photographs that professional photographers have taken during the race. And uh, I saw some beautiful ones of a finish at the uh, Sugarloaf Marathon in Maine. Uh, I bought postcards. And it was only after the postcards came, since I saw them on the screen in a very small, uh, even when enlarged view, that I noticed uh, in the photographs that my nips were bleeding. Um, so this happens after 26 miles of chafing of your shirt up and down, even if you Vaseline them. So the question naturally arises, uh, what about women marathoners uh, who have more breast tissue? It uh, weighs a substantial amount. It moves up and down. Um, did they suffer the same problems? Did they suffer worse problems? And the answer is obviously that they did. So I began doing, so to speak, an interview project while taking on these three and a half and four hour runs. Wow. So your runs actually became um, sources of in or became interview spaces for you. Yes, yes. Um, although I wouldn't call them interviews because uh, I'm I, I'm gregarious and I like people, so I call them more uh, nascent friendships that became interviews. <laughs> and and then I would write people afterwards and ask them. When I started working on the chapter itself or the article itself, I tracked down some of these people and wrote them uh, emails and said, uh, "Please describe to me your experience." Um, especially if the runners were somewhat older. Uh, the sports bra comes out, the first version is in the late 1970s. Um, it becomes a bigger thing in the early 1990s when sports bra, the founding company, uh, is bought by uh, uh, Playtex. Uh, there are now a number of companies that make them. So I wanted to identify women who... Uh, began running before they had uh, sports bras and experienced the dif discomfort that they I thought they must have and they had of chafing of real pain afterwards from the breast tissue getting so very sore. Uh, and then I also asked uh, uh, younger women uh, what their experience was because they came into an already formed market and an already formed uh, technology. But it turns out that uh, many women uh, do not uh, still uh, know how best to size and find a sports bra uh, perfect for them depending on shape and size. So that's something uh, surprisingly that's, that's still not there. 
So as we move from sports bras to sugar bananas and aluminum cans, we move to the third chapter. And we move to a chapter whose central focus, um, just as you mentioned helpfully that the previous chapter's focus was gender and technology, here we have a special focus on technology, colonialism, and post-colonialism. Now you focus on three objects um, that are really central to international trade here. And they're related in a really interesting way in a narrative that really draws them together. The first one is sugar. The second are bananas. And the third is an is aluminum. And you talk about various instantiations of aluminum. So let's actually dive into bananas and aluminum specifically. Now, the chapter reminds us that bananas in many ways are technologies. Um, big companies turned them into a kind of everyday snack that you have on your counter, um, regardless of uh, where you live right now. Certainly on my counter, I've got a, a bowl of bananas right now. But this was really a, a transformative process and very historically situated um, within a particular context that was um, very strikingly um, bound up in human labor um, in various forms. Now, you talk here about the importance of understanding um, the connection between slavery and bananas, and you talk specifically about the impact, the issue of the impact of slavery on technological innovation. So let's maybe um, focus in or use the banana as a way to focus in on those issues. Um, can you talk uh, for listeners who haven't had a chance perhaps to read the book, um, about the connection, uh, what you take to be the most important connections between the case of bananas and our understanding the connection between slavery and technology. Yes. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to mention that uh, our colleagues at the University of West Indies in uh, Jamaica and Kingston, Jamaica, have done a lot of work on uh, technology and uh, slavery. So, I tried to uh, build on their work, and I'm deeply appreciative of uh, their assistance in this regard. I started going to uh, Jamaica about 10 years ago, once again, to do a marathon and began thinking about the relationship between the commodities on the island as well as on the tourism industry. And it turns out that today's situation in uh, Jamaica uh, a country of great poverty and high unemployment, that many of those technologies, sugars, bananas, aluminum cans, are, uh, uh, manifest themselves in the way they do today because of the slave past and the colonial past. They were uh, important to the uh, European powers, uh, to increase through mercantilism and uh, colonialism their wealth at home. Uh, they were happy, the, the European powers were happy to use slaves to harvest uh, sugar and uh, eventually bananas. They justified their use of slaves, as we all know now, in a variety of different ways, uh, all of them immoral. And they also came to the conclusion that slaves could not be innovators and had no idea how to use technology. But it turns out that, in fact, all people who are involved in uh, labor are very familiar with technology, are innovative in their daily work and with their own hands and carry special knowledge <laughs> about the production process, if it's in agriculture, from planting to harvesting to processing, that knowledge is both valuable to the owners or the colonial managers, uh, but it's also very dangerous to them. And so the contention that many people make that slaves were incapable of innovation is first, not true, and second, it hides the story that the owners uh, tempted to uh, limit or control slave knowledge about their processes and their products in the same way you can say that managers in factories uh, elsewhere using tailorism attempted to de-skill laborers in the modern factory. Mm -hmm. I just had an opportunity to interview um, Dagmar Schieffer and Francesca Bray about their book on rice. And one of the themes that also came up um, in that in the course of that conversation was the 
the way that the black rice debate actually also um, encapsulates or, or um, is, is a place from which conversations about and debates about the interplay between slavery and, and technological innovation also emerges. Yeah, I just saw uh, Dagmar in uh, Berlin. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't say this, but I'm going to say she passes on her regards in oh, any event. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's really fascinating also about the Jamaican case is that even after uh, the emancipation in the 1830s, that uh, state power, uh, the colonialists, the British, and the wealthier landowners in Jamaica used other means, if not uh, slavery, control of land, control of people, um, control of products uh, to try to de-skill and uh, uh, control the, uh, the, the, the peasants, the Jamaican peasants and farmers to keep them in a disadvantaged position economically and uh, politically in a process that moved from sugar to bananas as the plantations develop both in Jamaica and later elsewhere, and to um, the production of bauxite uh, ore on uh, the Jamaican island. That is that the aluminum cans come in because of the fact that Jamaica was once number two producer of bauxite ore in the entire world and so even has a Cold War post-colonial history of contributing to uh, uh, Canadian and American aluminum production. Right. And this chapter, um, among the, the many things that you've already been talking about and that have already come up, it also is making an important point here in the conversation about and in the treatment of aluminum and the extraction of bauxite ore from Jamaica, that it wasn't just slavery um, that exploited Caribbean societies in this context. It was also a series of kind of land grab schemes that are pushing peasants off their land and causing some pretty severe environmental degradation. So there are real consequences here um, and ongoing consequences here, as you mentioned um, in the sort of concluding part of the chapter for understanding these everyday technologies in this way. Um, do you, you mentioned actually briefly before we move on to the next chapter, um, the issue of the future of Jamaica at the end of this chapter, sort of how do we go, as I understand it, how do we move from understanding sugar and bananas and aluminum as these technologies that are bound up in colonial um, violence, really? Um, and how do we move from that understanding to understanding what might come next and, and how to think about that productively? So did you want to speak to the future in this context at all before we move on? I'm I'm normally uh, quite an optimist about everyone and everything, but uh, in this chapter, it was more a rhetorical question, perhaps not knowing how to go from here, mm -hmm. because in my visits uh, every year to Jamaica, uh, I get to experience uh, life on uh, beaches and run the reggae marathon every December. Uh, and yet see the same issues of of labor, of control, of resources uh, playing out uh, into the 21st century. So I'm I was trying to be hopeful, um, but uh, I can't go beyond that at this point. Right. But let's go beyond that to the next chapter, at least. Um, so this is a chapter, chapter four, called Mass Produced Nutrition, Industrial Potatoes, industrial sweeteners. And this explores potato products and also high fructose corn syrup um, in really interesting and I think really important ways. Now, this chapter is going to show how hydroelectricity, irrigation, modern shipping, and monocultures, in the words of the chapter, come together in agro-business. And this um, theme of agro-business and the way that it shapes everyday technologies and really our bodies and our health um, very much emerges as, as an important theme here. Now, the chapter considers <clears throat> potatoes and high fructose corn syrup from the perspective of technological determinism. Um, and you reference Jacques Ellul's uh, The Technological Society in invoking this concept. 
you discuss these foods as self-augmenting technologies. So to kind of bring us into understanding how these particular foods are self-augmenting technologies, can you talk a little bit about that notion? What is a self-augmenting technology and what's important for us to understand about that in order to understand why it's important to think about potato products and high fructose uh, corn syrup in this way? Yes, it, it, the notion of technological determinism that Alul and other people have investigated uh, suggests that once a technology comes into existence, essentially we do its bidding. Uh, it develops uh, systems of support and control, and we are relegated to individuals determining uh, quantitative uh, doing quantitative analysis in support of those uh, technologies and we see them spread and take more of our resources and more of our attention. I suppose better than potatoes or fructose, the automobile is a good example of a, of a uh, technologically determinist uh, object that comes into existence at the turn of the 20th century and requires us if you move very quickly through the argument, eventually to uh, try to take out Saddam Hussein, not because he's a dictator, but because he's got lots of oil and he's interfering with uh, oil production in the world. Uh, automobiles, highways, gas stations, all of these things, uh, we are required to build together in a huge system. And we can look at potatoes, uh, as you mentioned arising out of the arid but fertile soil of eastern Oregon and Washington, uh, once again, not because of consumer demand necessarily, but because of the coming together of uh, federal power, uh, irrigation, electricity, uh, agribusiness, uh, being able to push and push and push and tie these technologies together, uh, bringing them all the way from the fields of Oregon and Washington State uh, to our mouths, into our homes, especially at fast food joints, all coming together as if we have no choice in the matter. And that's why I say uh, in the book, and I wanted to have this as the title, but sometimes you don't get your titles, um, the title of the chapter that I wanted was to be uh, Get the Fruck Out of My Food. <laughs> I, w I wish that it happened. Um, so it goes. So it goes. <laughs> and fruck here, um, for listeners who haven't yet seen the book, is a, is a kind of way of referring to high fructose corn syrup. Oh, yes. I forgot right. <laughs> to say that. <laughs> no, that's what I'm here for. Um, I so, get fruct all the time with uh, that. I forget. That, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so uh, fruct is also here a self-augmenting technology um, for lots of lots of reasons. Um, can you the the treatment of fruct in the book um, reads is very, um, very deeply engaged and very impassioned. So for you as a historian, why is it so important for us to understand um, fruct or high fructose corn syrup as a self-augmenting technology? What are the consequences for you as a historian of helping your readers understand um, this history in this context? Right. I suppose one thing I should say, uh, a colleague once asked me if, if it wasn't my book, it was more a rhetorical question just about politics. And I said, well, I guess it is. I'm a very political individual. And it seemed to me that this was one of the, the greatest cases of the need for Americans in particular. Now the Europeans are uh, being forced to consider whether they should permit high fructose corn syrup as an additive in their foods in greater amounts, um, that Americans needed to know about the history behind uh, fructose, its role as an additive, its uh, creation as a marketing ploy, uh, its origin in uh, university laboratories and that then 
lost their product to big agribusinesses whose you know whose goal ultimately is just uh, to profit the the way in which these companies were able to persuade the soft drink manufacturers to substitute it for sugar as more regular and less prone to international uh, price controls and ups and downs and revolutionary behavior in Caribbean countries and and so on and so forth. So um, it's now, if you look in almost every single food that we eat, and I give a list of some of these in the chapter, but uh, I urge readers to begin immediately tomorrow when they go to the store to examine all, any product that they buy and they'll find high fructose corn syrup in 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 percent of them. And it's led to significant public health problems, although the uh, fructose, uh, the fruckers uh, lobby uh, continues to attempt to deny that there's any relationship between obesity uh, type 2 diabetes or any of the other problems that uh, face uh, Americans. Uh, since a third of us are obese, I think there's something going on here with people eating too much and eating too many sweets. So uh, it became uh, a personal battle for me to for Americans to understand how corn production at the turn of the 19th century has led to fructose, high fructose, industrial sweeteners at the turn of the 21st century and significant public health problems. So these themes, kind of the importance of understanding these technological systems in terms of how we not just live right now, but think about what the future might bring as well for our bodies, but also more broadly for our world and for our societies. These themes very much carry over into the next chapter. Chapter five is called Technology and Natural, and natural here is in parentheses for an important reason we'll get to in a moment, technology and natural disasters. You cannot fool also in parentheses, Mother Nature. Now, Chapter 5 looks closely at hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and related phenomena to challenge the notion of natural disasters, showing them to be human, technological, social, and natural all at the same time. You say here in the chapter, to put it simply, without humans to apprehend nature, there are no natural disasters. So let's start here. Um, can you speak to this effort in the chapter to really reframe and challenge the very notion of natural in natural disasters? What's the major goal here and why is it so important um, as a historian uh, for you to do that? Uh, I think that in in this case, I came to the chapter uh, honestly through the uh, Chernobyl. Um, in other words, I began to think about uh, technological disasters, uh, technogenic dangers that human beings face because of my work in the former Soviet Union. I'm actually a historian of Russia and the former Soviet Union, although, as you can tell from this book, I've gone far and wide in my research and writing interests. And as I began to look at the other kinds of uh, disasters that just seemed to be more frequent and in, uh, involved uh, nature uh, and human technologies, uh, it occurred to me, and I'm not original in this, There, I, I mentioned in the notes if people want to look at some of the uh, uh, pioneering work on disaster history, that all of the so-called natural disasters we have where we blame Mother Nature and you hear journalists and political officials and so on say, well, we couldn't have done anything about that because it's Mother Nature. Um, it, it's not the case. There's always, always, in every case I have come across, uh, the fact that class, race and gender always play a role in these human disasters. It involves an earthquake, but with poor housing, so that those who can't afford to live in uh, more secure housing are the ones whose families are much more likely to uh, suffer, to have people maimed or to lose loved ones in an earthquake as buildings collapse. Or in flooding, it's usually those who live in threatened areas already because they can't afford to uh, elsewhere. Or if we look at the flooding of the Mississippi River and its history, in many cases, uh, African-Americans were 
uh, were either forced to try and save levees as the mighty Mississippi uh, was a, was about to destroy them and flood uh, white neighborhoods, or their neighborhoods were actually inundated by water when the uh, U.S. authorities would dynamite a levee so that the waters from the Mississippi would pour uh, into those black neighborhoods and avoid white neighborhoods further uh, downstream. So everywhere I looked, I could see that we're not fooling Mother Nature, we're fooling ourselves if we want to blame disasters on nature and not think about the way in which our technologies, our living situations our class relationships, our uh, political powers, our absence thereof, and race and gender always play a role in determining uh, who will pay the greatest costs when there is a significant disaster. Now, by the end of the chapter, you mentioned that looking ahead, the nature of technological systems makes negative interaction between nature and society more likely. And this actually really nicely, if I can use the term nicely here, um, it's a kind of disturbing, um, a, a very disturbing thought, but it um, effectively leads us into the next chapter. And this is the last body chapter of the book. Big Artifacts, Technological Symbolism, and State Power. Now, this chapter, Chapter 6, looks at large-scale technologies as symbols of state power, and it really brings us into Russia um, as a kind of major case study and major focus of this chapter. Now, you talk about um, a number of really, really interesting things that are going on um, today and potentially in the future in Russia that have really major consequences and are fascinating. And I just want to ask you um, just a, a couple things about some of the cases that you mentioned, just to kind of open them up for listeners. One of the major issues that you talk about is the effort to explore but also exploit mm. resources in the Arctic. Um, now, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that in the case of Russia, um, in part because this is an issue that comes up a lot in conversations here um, in Canada, um, a concern with the Arctic and with the exploitation of the Arctic and the consequences thereof. So can you talk about that as it animates your concerns here in this chapter? Uh, yes. Um, in fact, the book I finished just before uh, fish stick sports bras and aluminum cans is called The Conquest of the Russian Arctic. Mm -hmm. I spent about six months doing research in the Russian Arctic, uh, working in archives and doing field research and so on. Uh, I think most people understand that uh, global warming is a real phenomenon, except perhaps uh, Republicans in the U.S. Uh, House and Senate. But most everywhere else, people understand that global warming is not only a real thing, but a serious problem. Many Russians don't look at it in that way. They've got, uh, as you know, the largest Arctic uh, territory uh, other than Canada in the world. Uh, it covers I guess now eight time zones. It used to be 11, but President Putin uh, created new time zones. That's one of his great achievements as uh, president of Russia. And they see uh, global warming uh, and uh, as uh, giving them the ability with large scale technologies like nuclear icebreakers and other machines to tap and exploit the resources of the Arctic, and not only the oil and gas that we hear about so much, but rare metals and uh, nickel and copper, uh, platinum. Um, the Russian Arctic is, is deeply rich with all of these resources that Russia can sell on international markets, and that's how the state is run, by selling resources, um, that's uh, Putinism in, an, in essence. And so the ability of Russia to control and exploit its Arctic, Russian leaders see as a major source of the future greatness of uh, the Russian Federation under uh, President Putin. Now, the chapter is also doing a lot um, more work on things that we don't have time to necessarily go into in detail. I would love to talk to you 
for another hour about this chapter. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have the time. But I just want to mention and mark for listeners, there's some really interesting discussions here about technological utopianism and the very powerful Russian nuclear ministry. Um, there are some really interesting discussions about the Russian aerospace industry and also the exploitation of oil resources. So for listeners who are particularly interested in these issues and specifically the ways that these issues are germane to how we understand Russia, Russia right now, um, chapter six has some wonderful, wonderful material. I'd just like to, if I may just say one thing about that, um, I'm, I'm simply fascinated that a country that is experiencing such uh, tremendous uh, economic difficulties at this moment continues to advance, as you point out, these utopian projects to uh, put a man on the moon, uh, likely not a woman, by 2023, I believe, and to build something like 100 reactors in the next 30 years. So you're absolutely right. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, uh, issue to try to understand how uh, the Russian state sees these big things as so important to Russian identity. So this brings us um, toward our conclusion of our conversation today, but also um, into the conclusion of the book, which is also very important. And I wanted to reserve some time to talk about this with you. The concluding chapter looks at two important objects that offer some lessons as we move forward. And let's talk about those um, as a kind of conclusion. So one of the two objects that you talk about um, and spend um, some some time and some energy asking us to think about and work with and um, encounter anew as well is the book. Um, so you talk about books and specifically um, uh, some of these comments um, in the chapter are specifically geared to or seem geared to push back against what you call an assault on scholarship and other forms of life by the Internet. So books, Paul, um, for you, what's important for us to take away um, as we move away from the book and, and use books as one of our touchstones to do so? Well, my my feeling is rather uh, personal, and I feel very passionately about this. I'm I'm worried about the future of the library and the book uh, generally in the world. Although I think that ebooks sales are now uh, declining, which is uh, not surprising ultimately, because who wants to hold a piece of hard plastic in one's hands when you can flip back and forth with a book? And I've never seen anyone able to dog ear any kind of tablet. I like to dog ear pages. And I, I apologize to those people who love dogs. I love dogs um, too. But I'm really worried about how we uh, professional historians or professional academics from any field can hope to train our students to be independent and creative thinkers if they believe that everything they must know begins and ends with the Internet. That is, the Internet is a marvelous tool. Uh, primary sources are located there. It's a wonderful uh, resource for a variety of different purposes. And I think we're all uh, succumbing to the lure of instantaneous knowledge. But we need to train our students how to use those many and wonderful sources. Uh, the only way I believe they can fully uh, and objectively use the Internet is by learning how to read a book first and understand what goes into writing it, to learn about the scholarly apparatus, to understand from the back forward, in other words, from the index and the sources listed there, what is the nature of our uh, knowledge? How do we come to it? What kinds of, therefore, Internet sources can we rely on and use? But there's been a rush among uh, so many people, uh, especially librarians around the world, who think they must turn to electronic sources and abandon the, the book under the pressures of space considerations and of increasingly expensive uh, e-subscriptions to scientific journals. So they're just giving up. We need to make the book the center of every university and college campus, not the football field in the United States, and not the food court, as in many U.S. 
universities. Well, that's what it's become. But to celebrate the book and, and to love it and to embrace it. So what about bicycles, which is the other major object that emerges from this chapter? Um, uh, I say this as someone who's had uh, three accidents but has walked away from each of them and always wears a helmet. Um, this relates to what I was saying earlier about the uh, automobile. Uh, the bicycle, like many of the technologies we encounter in day-to-day life, like the book, is, is a human technology. It has human dimensions. Uh, it is a machine, but it requires us to think about others and to think about our environment and to embrace our environment in ways that automobiles uh, do not uh, permit. They have much lower demand on uh, infrastructure. Uh, It's better for public health. And it's wonderful to be in Europe, for example, where I am now, uh, where everyone uh, everyone bicycles, um, where... People have dedicated uh, bike lanes. I'd like to see a law, for example, in the United States where when highway funds are approved for rebuilding or expanding roadways, they must also offer something like 5% of that budget to build dedicated bike and pedestrian ways. This is the way of the future. It's not the fossil fuel economy. uh, It's the bicycle. It's a wonderful thing. And if you fall and walk away from it... uh, it's also a wonderful thing. <laughs> so as we move um, toward the conclusion of our conversation, I'll just mention um, for listeners uh, very, very briefly, there are also five big lessons that the conclusion closes with. This is the very end of the book. Follow the money to understand how everyday objects got to you and what the implications are. Maybe lesson one. Lesson two, recognize that all of them are international in one way or another. Lesson three, learn how to live without many of these objects, or at least put them aside from time to time. Lesson four, many technologies can free us from, um, in the words of the book, the inconvenience and inequity that others impose, so objects like the bicycle. And finally, um, lesson five, sometimes you should just say no. So, um, Paul, now that we're kind of at the conclusion of our conversation, of course, there's a ton um, of other material that we could talk about. Um, There's so much more in the book, and readers will find that as they explore the chapters for themselves. But in the meantime, is there anything that you'd like to leave us with um, before we close that maybe we didn't have a chance to talk about in the course of our conversation? No, I think that uh, you're quite right that I had meant those uh, five uh, lessons uh, to be uh, the real source of inspiration beyond what I think is, uh, I hope my colleagues agree when they review the book out there, uh, a a very deep and rich uh, scholarly foundation to each chapter, to the exploration of each technology. Uh, On the one hand, I sound a, a kind of pessimistic note about the power of these technologies to shape our lives often for the for the worse and to uh, discriminate against uh, laborers uh, people of lower classes uh, people of color uh, to have a gender uh, prejudice as well and that type of thing on the other hand uh, humans do have a choice this is not a technologically determinist world even if it appears to be And so if we have an opportunity to pick up a book uh, instead of uh, downloading something from the Internet, that's what we ought to do. If we can walk to the store, which is what I do, um, or ride the bicycle, uh, that is an opportunity that should be embraced not for being less convenient, but for actually being more convenient and more uh, future-oriented. And so I've continued my study, actually, of these kinds of technologies that I find to be uh, human and humane as opposed to large-scale and inhuman and exploitative, uh, and finished a book this autumn uh, on one of them about uh, speed bumps for traffic calming purposes, which is called uh, Speed Bump. It's inexpensive. It works pretty damn well. They even have them on the 
uh, Trans-Amazon Highway in very lightly settled regions. Uh, 20 kilometers to the next town, you'll come across a speed bump in the middle of a, of a forest. Uh, they work. They slow you down. Uh, they wake you up. They make you think. And so I think for now, I'm, I, I want uh, listeners to think about other speed bumps that we can build in life to uh, shape things, to, to make our lives better, more human, more environmentally sound. So now that the Speed Book project is out and this book um, that we've just finished talking about is out as well, what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Um, I'm working on... Uh, uh, I'm working on two books right now. Uh, one is a history of nature transformation in Russia from 1900 to the present. So it will pick up on a number of the themes in, in this past book. And I'm looking at state power uh, and human and environmental engineering in that book. I'm, I'm really excited about the project. I'm well into it. And I'm also uh, surprised and amazed at some of the continuities I see between the Tsarist period, the Soviet period, especially the Stalinist period, and the current period in Russia uh, today. And uh, I'm, I've submitted a, a book prospectus uh, for consideration on a global history of technology from 1750 to the present, where I will, I hope, uh, have the opportunity to give attention uh, to other worlds and other places uh, that we often, I suppose, in the United States and perhaps among Canadian colleagues, I don't want to speak for them, uh, tend to have a uh, North American or Eurocentric perspective. And I'm, I'm trying to fight that uh, in, in this book and say something uh, useful about the world and uh, technology and the innovative capability of people throughout uh, the world. Well, thanks so much for taking time away from that work to speak with me today and um, good luck with your research. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you, Carl. It's been a delight to talk with you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.